Our scripture text this evening is Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Now before I read it, I think it will be helpful for us to take just a moment to rehearse some of the history of Abraham leading up to this point, since the apostle is using him as an example, as a pattern of faith and righteousness. You can recall in Genesis chapter 6, up through chapter 9, that God destroyed the whole world, except for eight souls, by a flood. He saved Noah and his family. After which, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, began to repopulate the world, they along with their wives. And one of those sons, Shem, had a son named Terah. Terah was the father of Abraham. When we get to chapter 12, we learn of a man named Abram. We call him Abraham now, but at the time called Abram. And the Lord called him out of his homeland and promised to bless him and to make his name great and to bless all the families of the earth in him. And the Lord repeated this promise to Abraham in Genesis 13 and again in Genesis chapter 15, a chapter we looked at last week in which Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Then in Genesis chapter 17, which we just read, the Lord again repeated that promise to Abraham and gave him the sign of circumcision. Now the Lord's promise to Abraham was passed on to his son Isaac, and from Isaac to Jacob, and from Jacob to the 12 sons, the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel. When we come to the book of Exodus, we see that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, and therefore he led Israel out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land. This blessing of Abraham continued in the time of the judges, continued in the time of the kings. We can see it declared in the Psalms and indeed even in the prophets. When we come to the New Testament, John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the apostles all speak of this blessing of Abraham. Now, this much is certain. The Lord blessed Abraham and his descendants, and he continues to bless his descendants. It is perfectly natural that blessings are passed from a father to his children. Even today, more than half, about 60% of the world's population, claims Abraham as their father. Christians and Jews and Muslims, all three, claim that Abraham is their father. This prompts a question, who then are Abraham's children? And this is, the, this is the question that this passage is seeking to answer. So now let's look at Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, 
that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Let us pray. Our blessed God, we come to your word seeking your instruction. We ask, O Lord, for your Holy Spirit. Bless us, Lord, in the preaching and hearing of your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So to whom do the blessings of Abraham belong? The apostle answers that here in this passage, and we will find that out under three headings. Number one, the blessing. Number two, the sign and seal of that blessing. And then finally, the recipients of that blessing. They're going to be the blessing in verses 9 and 10, the sign and seal of that blessing in the first half of verse 11, and then the recipients of the blessing in verses 11 and 12. So the blessing in verses 9 through 10, this, first we want to define this blessing. This, when he says this blessing, does it pertain to the circumcision only or to the uncircumcision? We have to recognize that when he says this blessing, he's referring back to what we looked at last week in chapter 4 in verses 1 through 8. David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. The blessing which the apostle is referring to is not some earthly or temporal blessing. He is referring to what we call justification. Abraham's being counted righteous before God. Him being reckoned righteous, his sins being forgiven, and his sins not being imputed or counted against him. And I'm just going to make a a momentary sidebar here. Sometimes you may have heard about people debating the meaning of justification, whether this has to do principally with the forgiveness of sins or something else. And in this passage, going all the way back to um, verses 1 through 8, we see it's very clear that the doctrine of justification deals with the blessedness of imputed righteousness and the forgiveness of sins. This blessing, the blessing of Abraham, all the way from Abraham's day until now, is principally about righteousness by faith. So he says in the second part of verse 9, we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. The blessing, therefore, is righteousness by faith. Now, there may be other aspects to justification, but above all and prominent in the apostle's mind and in the text here is that the blessing of Abraham is righteousness by faith. How is this righteousness or this blessing obtained? Well, the apostle asks us, how then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? And he answers his own question for us. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And we know this. We we read Genesis chapter 15 last week and Genesis chapter 17 this week. And at minimum, keep in mind, there's 14 years between those two chapters, minimum. Maybe as many as 29 years. Abraham was declared righteous in chapter 15. He had not yet had a son. 
In chapter 17, he has a son, and we're told the age of that son. So at minimum, because it's Ishmael is 13 years old. So you factor in the time of Sarah getting pregnant and having Ishmael at least 14 years later, but maybe as many as 29 years later. So this is a very simple, sequential, chronological argument the apostle is making. He's saying if Abraham was counted righteous 14 years before he was circumcised, we must conclude that Abraham was blessed outside of circumcision. How then did he obtain this? Well, he he received the righteousness. It was wrecking to him. Remember, counted, credited. It was imputed to him by the means of faith. Faith was the instrumental cause of Abraham's righteousness. And when was this? While he was still uncircumcised. So before we move on, just understand that the blessing that we are referring to, when we ask who are Abraham's children, who gets Abraham's stuff, Abraham's stuff is righteousness, and he received that stuff before he was circumcised. I want to look now at the sign and seal of this blessing. Verse 11 says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. Now, you all know what a sign is. A sign is a sensible thing, something that can be seen or heard or tasted or touched or maybe even smelled. And it points to an otherwise invisible or unsensible reality. This is not the first mention of a sign in Genesis. So we read about the sign in Genesis 17.11. The Lord says, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. By the way, just notice this connection. The apostle in this passage says that Abraham received circumcision as a sign of righteousness by faith. And in Genesis chapter 17, verse 11, circumcision is a sign of the covenant. Ergo, the sign of the covenant is righteousness by faith. That is the covenant of grace. God promises forgiveness of sins and life by faith in the Redeemer, who we know is Jesus Christ. But this, that isn't the first time that signs are mentioned in the book of Genesis, leading up to Abraham. The first time signs are mentioned are actually in Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. The sun and the moon were given as signs for the days and times and seasons. It's the same word. And what what were the sun and the moon doing? The the day already existed, right? All of these, the day was already made. There was already an evening and morning before day 4 when the Lord made the lesser and greater lights. He made the lesser and greater lights to be signs for them. Do you see? They're a visible thing that we're pointing out something that otherwise would have been unknown. Another instance in Genesis chapter 4, this will be familiar to you. Cain was given a mark to protect him, to show that he was under God's protection. That mark, same word, sign. That mark signified something that people would not otherwise know. No one was there to see the conversation betwixt God and Cain. 
But when they saw whatever the mark was, they could discern that this man was under God's protection. You see, it was a visible thing, a tangible thing, that represented or pointed to something that would otherwise be unknown. One more time, it's actually three times, but in one passage, the rainbow is given as a sign of God's covenant after the flood. I put my rainbow in the sky, then you know I'm not going to destroy the whole world by flood again. By the way, this is one way that we know that all of the climate alarm stuff is hookum. Um, God says in this passage that until, as long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest, the seasons, all of that will continue. And he promises not to destroy the earth by this means again. And every time you see a rainbow, remember that that is a reminder of God's promise, which includes preserving the earth, preserving even the seasons and the climate, as it were, until such time as he is ready to destroy it all. So these are some other signs, right? So think of the, the, the nature of the rainbow in the sky to Noah and to the whole earth, it is said. It was there to be a visible reminder of an invisible reality. That reality being God's promise to Noah and his sons and the whole rest of the earth. This sign of circumcision is called also a seal. Now, a seal is very similar to a sign, but but a seal confirms, guarantees, authenticates something. It shows it to be certain and guaranteed. There are a few passages in the New Testament that kind of help us to understand this. God has sealed us Christians in 2 Corinthians 1.22 and given us the spirits in our hearts as a guarantee. So a seal is not necessarily a visible thing, right? The sign is visible, but the seal is simply something that guarantees. And God is said to give us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, and that's called a seal. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, the apostle says, You, Christian, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So the seal is the spirit who is a guarantee. Don't miss the allusion to baptism in these passages, by the way. Right? What does baptism picture? But the Holy Spirit is one part of it, isn't it? One more in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do you see the Spirit coming to a believer provides for the believer a seal, a guarantee, a ratification, a confirmation. So circumcision was given to Abraham then as a sign and a seal of what? A sign and seal now, here's a, be careful on this one. Here's one that I often hear people misquote. They say that it was given to Abraham as a sign and seal of his faith. But that's not actually correct. It says a sign and seal of the righteousness which he had by faith. You see, the sign and seal are for righteousness, which was unknowable. To, how, how, what's a righteousness look like? Abraham had no way... To see his righteousness. 
He had to take God's word for it, right? He had to believe the word of promise. But God, being kind and merciful, gave Abraham more than just a promise. He also gave him a sign and seal to signify and confirm that promise. So that Abraham would know he would have further tangible evidence for believing that what God said was true. So it is not a sign of faith, but rather a sign of righteousness, and that righteousness comes by faith. So Abraham, we could say, was given a sign of the covenant of grace, because the covenant of grace, as we discovered earlier, is righteousness by faith, which is the same as the blessing of Abraham. So the reality to which Abraham's circumcision pointed, right, the, the righteousness that he had, preceded the sign. And this will become critical for Paul's reasoning about who the children of Abraham actually are. The righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. This is a principle of logic. An effect cannot precede its cause. Right? If that which comes first cannot be the effect of that which comes after. All right, so that is the sign and the seal, which we know was circumcision. Let's look now at the second part of verse 11 into verse 12 at the recipients. This is where we get our answer. What we're seeing so far is that the blessing is righteousness. And that righteousness is signified and sealed by this sacrament called circumcision. Who then are the recipients of this blessing? Well, Abraham is the father of the uncircumcised who believe. Therefore, they are the rightful recipients of the blessing. Do you see the logic? The children receive the blessing of the father. Those who believe even though they're not circumcised, are the children of Abraham. Therefore, those who believe, even though they're not circumcised, are the children of Abraham and receive the blessing of Abraham. Here in verse 11, there are a couple of purpose statements. That he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised. So the reason why he was circumcised after he believed was so that he could be the father, the progenitor, of those who believe without having been circumcised. In that sense, Abraham was more like a Gentile, more like an uncircumcised, than he was like a Jew. The typical Jew would have gone the opposite direction, right? He would have been circumcised and then believed. In this case, Abraham believed and then was circumcised. There's a second purpose stated in verse 11, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Them being the uncircumcised, those outside of Israel. Now, this takes on a different kind of relevance in the New Testament. You think in the book of Acts, chapter 15. There were those who were teaching that you cannot be saved except you are circumcised. Right, this is the kind of, that's the context in which the Apostle Paul is writing here. There were, and, and you can see there's, there's a basis for this in the Jewish mindset. Circumcision had been instituted since Abraham, and it was always required. When, when a Gentile converted, he needed to get circumcised. 
right? But even in Abraham's day, it was never the case that you could not be saved unless you were circumcised. Abraham was saved, and then he was circumcised. Even even Gentile converts who subsequently were circumcised probably would have been saved and then circumcised. Now, not only is Abraham the father of the uncircumcised who believe, but he is also the father of the circumcised who believe. Therefore, they too are the rightful recipients of Abraham's blessing. He is the father of the circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Here's a little bit of what had to have been a a twist to the Jewish audience. They had to recognize that the blessing of Abraham comes from a position of uncircumcision. There are tremendous solidarity and advantages to having been circumcised, but they are being told that they must walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while he was uncircumcised. Completely, again, the opposite of someone saying, you cannot be saved except you be circumcised. Now, notice the qualification for these circumcised. The circumcised who believe. Abraham is the father, not only of those who are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith which our father Abraham had. Observe that it is possible that one could be circumcised and not be righteous. This reminds me in Matthew chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will not be saved. Do you see how you can believe and be baptized and be saved? But if you are baptized but don't believe, you can't be saved. All of this that Paul has done has argued that circumcision is not what we would call the condition for justification. So who are the recipients of Abraham's blessing? Well, very plainly, whoever believes. They are the ones who are given the right, the divine right, to the inheritance of Abraham. Now, I want to just close with a few applications. I think I have three of them. Since it is those who believe that receive the blessing of Abraham, pursue the blessing by faith. Pursue the blessing by faith. Three times in this passage alone, Faith is emphasized as the means to obtaining the blessing. You saw it in verse 9. Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness. You saw it in verse 11. Abraham is the father of all who believe. You saw it in verse 12. Abraham is the father of all who walk in the steps of faith. I love that expression, walking in the steps of faith. Matthew Henry says that it is not perfect faith, 
that wins the day, but prevailing faith. Do you see this? Is that Abraham's faith, we, we will later on read about his faith and how he did not waver and all of these things, but, but reading the story of Abraham, we see there were moments of difficulty for him. But he had a prevailing faith. Right? Not a perfect faith, not an unmixed faith, not a faith that never wavers. No, a prevailing faith. A faith that wins the day is the kind of faith that gets the righteousness of God. So let us pursue this blessing by faith, putting aside, putting out of our minds any other means of obtaining a right standing with God. A second application is to use the sacraments properly. I'm using the word sacrament here, and we spoke of circumcision. And I want to narrow it down just a little bit, but we read earlier in Colossians chapter 2. And I want to just look at that for a moment. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. But 2.11 and following. Keep this in mind. Here's the context. We have people running around saying, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. The apostle says this. In him, that is Christ, you were circumcised. Okay? If you start in verse 11 and go all the way down through verse 15, that's one sentence. And the main verb in that sentence is this. You were circumcised. Okay? And then what kind of a circumcision? With the circumcision made without hands, by the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. So, you, believer in Christ, were circumcised. You received a circumcision without hands that put off sins and flesh. It's called the circumcision of Christ. How did you receive it? This is a participle phrase in verse 12 that modifies the main verb. Having been buried with him in baptism. How are Christians circumcised? How do we avoid the penalty that was threatened to Abraham, right? Anyone who is not circumcised will be cut off. How do we avoid that penalty? The circumcision of Christ. How are Christians circumcised? How is it that we do not have to receive circumcision? We are circumcised. We have the circumcision of Christ. At this point, some of our Baptist brothers would say, yes, but this is talking about spiritual baptism and spiritual circumcision. Okay. But I think we ought to ask at that point is, do spiritual circumcision and spiritual baptism have any analogies that we can think of from the Bible? Do they correspond to any other things that are called by the same names? In other words, when we think about spiritual circumcision, we understand that it's related to a sacrament that the Lord called circumcision. And when we speak of spiritual baptism, we likewise understand that we have for ourselves a a sacrament appointed by Christ, also called, by the way, baptism. What I want you to see here is that according to the scriptures, baptism is the circumcision of Christ. Having done that, let's go back to our main text and talk about this application of using the sacraments properly. When I speak of the sacraments going forward here now, I'm principally talking about the sacrament of baptism. Much of what is said here will apply to the Lord's Supper, 
But specifically talking about baptism because it is the analogy, the the analog to circumcision. How to use them properly? First of all, do not rest in them. Do not put your trust in the sacraments. We have seen that the sacraments, apart from faith, cannot profit. The the apostle said those who are circumcised, not only circumcised, but also walk in the steps of faith, are the children of Abraham. So do not rest in your baptism. Do not trust in your baptism as baptism, right? As itself, but rather rest in Christ, whose blood and spirit are signified in that sacrament. The sacrament itself is not able to save you. Pastor Heipel can't save you. The words that we say can't save you. It is only Christ who makes that promise, whose blood washes you, who sends his spirit. He is the only Savior. Beloved, there is not enough water in all of the baptisms in all of the world to quench the fires of hell for those who are impenitent and unbelieving. Baptism is given to us by Jesus Christ for our good, but it is not something for us to rest in or to trust in or to think that we can be free from faith or from repentance. We must put our trust in Christ because righteousness is by faith and the sacraments are given as signs and seals of that righteousness, not as causes or grounds of that righteousness. So do not rest in them. Secondly, do not neglect baptism. The example of Abraham proves that the sacraments are not necessary for justification. But they are necessary for assurance, for obedience, and for the maintenance of the gospel. I'll explain those. They're necessary for assurance. God gave Abraham a visible sign and seal to confirm and guarantee an invisible grace. And he did this to assure and comfort Abraham and his descendants. Baptism works the same way. The Lord's Supper works the same way. These visible signs and seals are there for our assurance. When we see them, when we think upon them, we, just like the, the rainbow, when Noah saw the rainbow, it was his assurance. It was a reminder. Do you think God needs reminding? God doesn't need reminding, but sometimes we do. Therefore, baptism serves as a reminder to assure us of God's promise. Let's see, where are we, guys? Ah, yes, they are necessary for obedience. (laughs) So Abraham was counted righteous before he was circumcised. Therefore, we know that his circumcision was not the cause of his righteousness. But observe that righteous Abraham obeyed the command to circumcise himself and his children after him. He could not stand by and say, I am believing the Lord. I am trusting his promises. Mm, I'm going to decline on that command to circumcise. That's why baptism then is necessary for obedience. 
Righteousness, as we've read, comes by faith, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And that word was preserved on the earth among God's church for centuries among, the, among those who were circumcised. Do you see how God used circumcision to mark out the visible church as an institution in a place of believers and preserved it through this sacrament? And this is what I mean by the sacraments or baptism is necessary for the maintenance of the gospel. The Gentiles who were saved in the first century and subsequent to it were saved by a message that had been preserved amongst the Jews through circumcision. That was how God marked out his visible church in the world. And it was with circumcision and all the laws that went along with it that God put a fence around the gospel and ensured that it was preserved until Christ came. Therefore, while we do not rest in the sacraments, neither should we neglect them. Here are two ways that you can avoid neglecting the sacraments or neglecting baptism in this case. Number one, see that your children are baptized. Now, we saw the order with Abraham. Abraham believed, and then he received the sign and seal of righteousness. But we also saw in the passage we read earlier that believing Abraham also placed that circumcision upon his children according to God's very own command. The same is true with us. If indeed baptism is the circumcision of Christ, it follows that we who are the children of Abraham want to apply the circumcision of Christ, to our children. We, when we believe, we step into the place that Abraham was, right? We now become the father. And we then take that sign and seal and put it on our offspring. That is part of our exercising faith, by the way. Abraham had to circumcise his children, believing that God was going to keep his promise. Here is a second way that you cannot neglect. I probably could have said that without the negatives. Here is a way to keep baptism. Here is a way to make it of good use to you. Improve your own baptism. Improve upon it. Now, this sounds a strange thing to say, but, but what I mean by improve is does not make better what God has done, but work in yourself to make better use of what God has given you. And here are a couple of ways to do that. Number one, considering the privileges that come with it and the responsibilities that come with it. Consider the privileges and responsibility of baptism. For instance, when you see a baptism administered in church, consider that you too have been baptized and what, when those parents take those vows and the congregation takes its vow and we talk about what it signifies and seals, all of that, apply those things to yourself. Keeping in mind also that when you put on the uniform of the triune God, you have enlisted, you have, you have pledged allegiance to his kingdom. 
And that brings with it responsibilities. Those responsibilities include obeying him and believing him and following after him and calling upon him in your time of trouble and giving honor to him and worship, etc. Number two, humbling yourself over the uncleanness and sin in you that contradicts the sign and seal of baptism. Right? What is the picture of baptism? It is the washing away of sin, the cleansing away of defilement, and the coming down of the Holy Spirit. When we sin, and the pollution and defiling that resides in our heart, our walking after the flesh and not the Spirit, those contradict, right? They go against the sign which God has placed upon us. So when you consider your baptism, humble yourself over those things. Number three, improve your baptism by growing in the assurances of the things promised in it. Baptism promises forgiveness of sins. Baptism promises newness of life. Baptism promises resurrection from the dead. Grow in your assurance. God gave that to you, even as he gave circumcision to Abraham, for your assurance. Therefore, when you consider baptism, when you see one, when you look back on your own Grow in the assurances of the things promised by it. Next, drawing strength from Christ who promises to work in it. Do you see that? When, just as we said, we give a pledge to God when we are baptized. Christ pledges himself to us in baptism. He's taking us into his church. And being a part of his church comes with certain privileges. And among those privileges include the Holy Spirit who strengthens us, who gives us grace, who gives us the benefits of Jesus Christ. And therefore your baptism is a promise of the strength and grace that you need to be kept to the end. Fifthly, improve your baptism by striving to live by faith in Christ who gave it. So just as your justification is by faith, you have to understand the whole of your Christian life is by faith. By faith in the Son of God who loved you and died for you. So, in thinking on your baptism, let it be an encouragement to you to strive to live by faith in the one who gave it to you. Finally, for improving your baptism, walking in love with those who share in the same baptism as you. There is one baptism, right? One Christian baptism. And we are obligated to love those especially who share in that same baptism as us. One more. Do your part. These are applications of being the children of Abraham. Do your part in the propagation of the blessing. Propagation meaning making it go forth. Now, the blessing of Abraham belongs to all who believe, right? And God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. This corresponds very well to Christ's own great commission, right? Go and disciple all the nations. In fact, the great commission is really a continuation and, if you will, an expansion of the promise, blessing that God gave to Abraham. 
When God said that he would bless all nations through Abraham, he had in mind ultimately Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus Christ gives a commission to disciple all the nations, he's saying the work that God promised to Abraham, we continue. And it goes to all nations. Beloved, we are a part of those nations from the standpoint of the Bible. Not being Abraham's natural offspring, yet being included in this blessing, we above all people should be especially concerned for those nations. Now, that does not mean that you all are missionaries called to go to Boingo Boingo tonight. But according to your places and callings, you ought to have a concern for the gospel to go to all nations. Certainly you can be praying for missionaries. Certainly you can be praying for churches in foreign places. Certainly you can be supporting missionaries. Certainly you can be finding out ways that you can assist the church in sending the gospel to all nations. Remember it is those who believe who are the children of Abraham. Therefore, we must always be ready to receive people of whatever nation who believe. Now, we cannot hope to bring the gospel to all nations if we neglect it in our own churches and families. Here is a mistake that some make. I have have known men who have been excited to go to Boingo Boingo, but they could not give their kids a bathy-wathy. The point is, the biblical principle is, you start at home and you work your way outward. We must be like the circumcised who walk in the steps of Abraham. Not only believing God's promise to us, but also to our children in their generations. In that passage in Genesis 17 that we read, in verse 9 it says, Keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. Abraham was appointed and placed to have his descendants learn to keep God's covenant after them. The primary condition of that covenant is this. Believe. They were to be taught to believe. The second thing is to obey. You believe the Lord, you obey the Lord. Those are the conditions of his covenant. In chapter 18 of Genesis, so one chapter later, after, after the Lord gives Abraham the sign of circumcision, he says this concerning Abraham. I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which I have spoken of him. Do you see the means by which the blessing of Abraham is being propagated amongst his descendants? It is Abraham commanding his children and household after him, them keeping the way of the Lord, And then the Lord brings upon Abraham that which he had spoken. This is illustrated for us in Genesis chapter 26. Here the Lord is dealing with Isaac, Abraham's son. Okay, The Lord said to Isaac, I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. 
I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Do you see how Abraham and his faith and obedience were instrumental in the promise coming to Isaac? And then God brought to Isaac the blessing which he promised to Abraham. Now, the Lord Jesus, we've talked about this before. He said, Abraham's children do what Abraham did. Abraham believed God. And not just for himself, but also for his children. And also for those who far off, who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. If we are indeed Abraham's children, let us walk in the steps of the faith that he had while uncircumcised. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you and thank you for your precious promises, for the means that you give us for clinging to those promises. We pray, Lord, that you would enlarge the gospel in our hearts, that, O oh God, by faith we are righteous. Give us faith, O oh Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.